Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, do you remember the, the short story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Written by, it's an old fable, I guess, or fairy tale, written by Hans Christian Andersen. And the story, in case you haven't heard it, I'll give a brief summary of it. The, the story centers upon, around um, an emperor who is really very fond of appearances and, and clothing while other kings are, are getting, you know, spending time planning their wars. This king spent his time in his dressing room. Well, some con, con men come to town one day and, and convince the emperor that they can make him some exquisite clothing that will actually be invisible to those who are unwise or impure in heart. Now, out of fear of what others will think of them, everybody, almost everybody in the kingdom is taken in by this con. The, the emperor's officials the emperor himself, and eventually the entire town are taken in. Even though each one of them cannot see the clothes that these con men are supposedly weaving on their looms, they lie and pretend that they can see the clothes so that no one will think that they are unfit or impure in any way. Well, this charade reaches its climax as the con men dress the emperor in his new invisible clothes and they collect their final payment and then skip town. Meanwhile, the emperor parades himself around town as everyone in town joins in the charade, too fooled or too fearful to say the truth. Then, suddenly, a child blurts out, but the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. And the whole town begins to whisper the truth and eventually begins to shout it out with the child. But the emperor himself just shivers, suspecting that they are right. He thinks to himself, this procession has got to go on. So he walks more proudly than ever before as his noblemen hold high the invisible train of his robes all the way back to his palace. You know, the, the end of this story reminds me a lot of Romans chapter 2. Many of the, the Jews of Paul's day were just like that emperor, sort of strutting around, wrapped in their own self-righteousness and their own sense of privilege as God's chosen people. And then suddenly, quite unwelcome, here is this man Paul who appears on the scene and cries out the truth for all to hear that their self-righteousness and religious heritage are, are no clothing at all, that, that they are actually quite naked and exposed. Paul has, has just blurted out the truth that being Jewish and having the law and being circumcised are not sufficient in and of themselves to save you from the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven. In fact, in the last few verses of Romans chapter 2, Paul has actually just asserted 
that the uncircumcised, believing Gentiles who keep the precepts of the law will actually be regarded as if they, they are the ones who had been circumcised. That's just explosive. While those who are circumcised without keeping the law will be regarded as if they were the ones who were uncircumcised. Look at verses 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know, this was the part of Paul's gospel presentation that was getting him kicked out of synagogues all over creation. How does one respond when being exposed in this way? How do you and I respond when our hypocrisy is exposed? May we not respond like the emperor in our little story at the beginning. Unfortunately, most of Paul's fellow countrymen did respond that way. And that's why Paul can so effectively anticipate their objections here as we turn the corner into Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I see here Paul responding to four anticipated objections that he knew his countrymen would raise to everything he had just said in Romans chapter 2. And, and the first of those objections is this. Question one, is there no advantage Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? So what are you saying, Paul? Is there no advantage before God to being a Jew? Is there no value in circumcision? I really see this as, as really the most genuine question here in this entire paragraph of questions. The questions kind of start out genuine and then I think become more absurd and more accusatory as they go. Let's be honest, the, the potential pitfall of hypocrisy is an exasperating and frightening thing, isn't it? it it's terrifying to think that you could be so heavily invested in, in your religion, you could be so heavily invested in your, in, in your faith, but in the end be called out as naked before God. That's frightening. It's frightening. I can just hear the... The, the Jews saying, you mean all this stuff I've been doing and trusting in is worthless, Paul? Is that what you're saying that is of no value? You know, this is the kind of thing that Paul's saying here that if you took it the wrong way, if you took it maybe too seriously in, in the wrong way, you, it could lead you to the c- conclusion that perhaps trying to follow God is just hopeless. Right? Who can do it? But I, I don't think that's all that's at stake here. There's also at stake... A, a workable plausibility for the claims of Christ. What's at stake is whether or not Paul is claiming to completely set aside everything that God has claimed to be and, and to, to do up to this point, everything he's promised. Paul, are you just setting aside everything that God has said from the beginning and the promises that he's made to us? I mean, you can just feel the exasperation here. It's kind of a big deal. 
Is Paul and therefore the claims of Christ late in appearing here as, as something brand new, late in time? Is it appearing here to overturn all that God has said, all that God has promised to be? Or is following Jesus Christ a legitimate continuation of something that God has really been doing from the beginning? Right? It's a, what's at stake is a workable plausibility structure for the claims of Christ himself. And, and so in one sense, we might have expected Paul to answer this question to say, no, you know what, forget it all. It's all worthless. Circumcision, Jewishness, all that, just forget it. Get, get, flush it out of your mind. It's not helpful. But that's not what he does. You see, because what God does in and through Jesus Christ flows out naturally out of what he's been doing from the beginning. Is Paul abolishing all that it means to be a Jew as meaningless and worthless? His answer couldn't be any clearer here in verse 2. Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Is there any value in circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. Much in every way. Listen to me clearly. There are some very serious pitfalls to avoid when you, when you genuinely seek after God. There, there are some very serious pitfalls, and hypocrisy is one of those things that you want to make sure that you avoid. But please, please, please don't conclude from this that you'd be better off without his word or better off without his people, better off without God. Don't come to that tragic overreaction here to maybe even the presence of hypocrisy that you might sense in your own life. Paul says that the advantages of being numbered among God's people are much in every way. And and then he goes on to say, he says, to begin with, the, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. That phrase there, to begin with, is actually just one word in the original Greek. And it can mean first, as in the first advantage in a long list of advantages. And that that might be be what Paul means here. In fact, that's the way the ESV that we read from this morning, that's the way they take this word uh, as they translate it, to begin with. And maybe Paul, you know, was intending this longer list of advantages, but just gets sidetracked here. Paul is known to, to do that. And, uh, you know, if that is the case, we can look ahead at Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, and see Paul actually listing, completing a list, doing a, a longer list of Jewish advantages. In fact, really, my friends, everything we're talking about this morning really is going to be expounded on to a greater detail here in the rest of the book. So I don't have to say it all this morning, right? But even though this word can mean that first in a a long list, I really think the emphasis here is on the fact that this word can also mean not just first in a list, but also first in importance, as in chiefly. Uh, So for example, uh, what are the advantages of being a Jew? Well, chiefly you have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. It's the way Jesus uses this exact same word in Matthew 6.33 when he says, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Chiefly seek the kingdom, right? That's the way that word is used in that verse. Paul is saying here, I think that chief among the advantages of being a Jew is this. 
you have been entrusted with the special revelation of God through his very word. What an advantage, what a privilege. And it's interesting here that Paul didn't just say that they had been entrusted with the scriptures, but he says that they've been entrusted with the oracles of God, literally the words of God. But that, this phrase here, the, the oracles of God, is indicating more, not just the scriptures in general, but the, pro, the promises that the scriptures contain. You're a receptor of the very promises of God contained in the scriptures. Such a blessing and advantage, my friends, to sit under the word of God. To have it in your life, to even have the word of God undergirding much of the fabric and foundation of your society. You know, even though America is, is quickly speeding away from any, any semblance of, of its godly foundations, we still have a church on just about every street corner. Right? The word of God is accessible. It's, uh, it, it's present still. And, and this really stands out if you ever go somewhere else in the world where the word of God is almost completely absent. It's not just that people are against it, but it's just not even on the radar screen. Let me tell you, the, in those kinds of situations, the darkness is hard to describe. And, and that's why we as a church... We bother to support international missions, right? That's why we would willingly send even our own sons and daughters to the other side of the world if God called them for the sake of, of, of these promises, the word of God spreading to the ends of the earth. Such an advantage, such a privilege that not everybody has. So even with all the potential pitfalls that those who seek after God might fall into, including things like hypocrisy. Don't tell me that you're better off without the promises of God contained in his word. Don't tell me that you're better off without the preaching and teaching of his word, sitting underneath the preaching and teaching of his word. Don't tell me that you're better off without the community of God's people based upon God's word in your life. You're not. It's such an advantage. If we didn't know this before, then certainly we know it now. Right in the, in the midst of this situation for, where for the first time in our lifetime, our ability to meet together has been hampered and maybe even threatened. Listen, my friends, if I, if I stumble through every aspect of, of what I'm saying and is completely in, unintelligible to you, you don't know what it is that's coming out of my mouth, but you have before you a copy of God's word and you open that up today and you read God's word, you are under a distinct advantage this morning that many other people in the world can't even imagine. To sit before the light of God's word. So I join Paul in answering the question, is there no advantage? He numbered among the people of God. There is much in every way. Well, Paul imagines another objection here, beginning in verses 3 and 4. And I boiled down this question to, to simply this, is God unfaithful? And this one really, I mean, just flows right out of this here. You can kind of just see, okay, Paul, uh, the, the Jew here would undoubtedly be saying, 
I, I'm glad you brought up these adv- this advantage in particular, this advantage of the promises of God. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the promises of God. Hasn't God covenanted with Abraham and his descendants to make us his people? He gave us this sign of circumcision as a sign that we are his. Stop pulling the rug out from underneath me here by saying I could be judged. Is God faithful or isn't he? Is God faithful to his promise to be, for me to be one of his people because I took on this sign of circumcision? It's an important question. Is God faithful? Is God unfaithful? It's an important question for, for Jews to ask and it's a question, an important question for us as Christians to ask. Does the unfaithfulness of men nullify the faithfulness of God? Is God unfaithful? Look at verses 3 and 4 where, where Paul says here, this is, he's giving voice to this objection. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. By no means. Paul's response here is emphatic. He says in the Greek, meganoita. It's an extremely vehement denial. Something the ESV translates by no means, but we might also say absolutely not or no way Jose. Or if you're from the city, forget about it. Paul says, let God be true and everyone a liar, though everyone were a liar. Paul's saying here that not only is God faithful when some people are unfaithful, but God will be true or, or faithful though everyone be false. Even if God judges not, some, not just some of his covenant people, but even if all of God's covenant people are unfaithful and they fall away into idolatry and, and, and to sin or, or what, what have you, any kind of sin, hypocrisy, and God judges them in, in their sin and their faithlessness, God is not thereby rendering himself open to the, the charge of being unfaithful. No, Paul says, let all men be unfaithful and let God be be declared faithful because he is. Why is this? You know, many of God's promises to the people of Israel were, in fact, conditional promises. Do you know that? The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the covenant was based upon some conditional promises that there would be blessings for obedient faith for those who followed the law if they followed the law as a nation and there would subsequently be cursing and punishment for disobedience and rebellion and so God even built it right into the covenant that he was actually being faithful and true to his word both through blessing for faithfulness and and cursing through punishment and you might respond to that well you know thanks a lot pastor saying that's not very comforting Well, the comfort in it is this. God doesn't say one thing and do another. He is trustworthy. And and the, the, the real comfort here is to be found, I think, in the quotation that, that Paul makes here at the end of chat of verse four. He says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. 
and quotes here Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified in your words and, and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, where, where Paul takes this quotation from, if you're not familiar with that psalm, it was the, uh, we read a, a portion of it this morning here in our Old Testament reading. Psalm 51 is, is perhaps the most noteworthy psalm of repentance in the whole Bible. This is the psalm that, that David wrote after he'd been confronted about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then subsequently murdering Bathsheba's husband and trying to cover it up. Right? Prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him about his hypocrisy and David responds with this beautiful psalm of, of true repentance over his hypocrisy. And so, you know, l- let me just tell you, it's intriguing that Paul in talking to his own countrymen, goes back and plucks this psalm of all psalms to quote in this moment, right? This, this psalm of, of the beloved King David being confronted in his hypocrisy, and how did he respond? I can guarantee you that the significance of this would not have been lost on the Jews. Paul was giving them a well-known model for how he wanted them to respond in this moment in their own moment of being confronted about their hypocrisy. You admire David will respond like David, who in Psalm 51 basically throws himself upon the mercy of the heavenly court. In fact, let's just flip back here to Psalm 51 for just a moment and read a couple of these verses. Psalm 51, and I wanted to read verses 3 and 4 again. David says here, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David acknowledges here that he has sinned against God and against God alone. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. What, what does he mean by that? He doesn't, he's not minimizing the damage and the harm that he has done to Bathsheba and to Uriah, her husband, and to anybody else. He's not minimizing that, but he's maximizing the offense that he now sees he has created before God. Right? He's taking full ownership. He's he's actually fully accepting the gravity of his sin and recognizing that it is chiefly an affront to the holy God. David knows that the root of his offense is actually his high-handed sin against God. And that's when, when David acknowledges that here, then that he pens the, the words that Paul takes up and quotes in Romans chapter 3 here at the here uh, verse 4 of, of Psalm 51, where he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's basically saying here, you, God, are completely justified in judging me, you're completely blameless in it. David's recognizing it. No one can accuse you, God, of, of doing wrong when you judge me. Even though David was under the covenant, he was one of God's chosen people, chosen to be the king of God's chosen people, and yet David recognizes, God, you would be completely blameless in judging me right now. God has every right to judge David's sin, and he knows it. And David is saying that God's judgment would in fact put God's righteousness on full display. 
So I hope you see the logic here of why Paul quotes this particular little verse from Psalm 51 in Romans chapter 3. Paul lets the repentant hypocrite David prove his point for him. Here's how you respond. Here's how you avoid responding to a charge of hypocrisy like the emperor that we saw at the beginning with his invisible clothes. David repents of his grievous sin and becomes a trophy of God's mercy. And that's where the the good news comes in, in in this little question here, that if you're asking, is God unfaithful? No, God is not unfaithful. He will always punish sin. But the good news tucked in underneath this is that God is also merciful to those who repent. God is not only faithful to his promise when he saves, he's also faithful to his promises when he judges sin. But God is also extremely merciful. Question number three, Paul anticipates here. Okay, if God isn't unfaithful, is God unrighteous? These questions just stack up one right after the other here. And they begin to become absurd, quite frankly, beginning with this verse. Look at verse 5. Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So if Paul's going to insist that God is still faithful even when he judges his covenant people, and that, in fact, my sin indirectly puts God's righteousness and justice on display, like Psalm 51.4 says, then wouldn't that make God unjust in, in, in inflicting wrath on me for doing something that indirectly brings glory to God? It's absurd. And even Paul can't help saying so. He, he, he has to interject here that I speak in a human way, lest someone under, misunderstand him. And look at how Paul answers this in verse 6. He says, by no means, once again. For then how could God judge the world? The answer here is, no way. Be consistent. Paul responds once again with this emphatic May genoita, may it never be, forget about it. For with, the, with that same line of reasoning that the questioner just brought up, God would be unjust to judge anyone. How can God judge the world if, if when I do something wrong, I then indirectly glorify God when he judges me, so then how therefore is God righteous in judging me It's so absurd because how could God judge anyone then? Because God's judgment always brings him glory in his righteousness and in his justice. For a Jewish person saying this, they would never say this about God punishing unrepentant Gentiles. They wouldn't say it. But here when they're being pressed, they want to object and say, no, it would be unrighteous for God to do that because through my sin... Don't I indirectly glorify God? It's almost blasphemous. But the person objecting doubles down here. Read verse 7. It says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This is really the, 
the same question as question three being revoiced, is God unrighteous? He's saying here, if my lie, or which is just another way of saying my unfaithfulness, causes God's truth or God's faithfulness to abound to his glory, then why in the world should I still be condemned as a sinner? Right? He's, he's doubling down on this. Well, I really like the way R.C. Sproul observed at this point. He said, isn't this verse, verse 7 here, the cry of Judas, meaning Judas Iscariot on the last day? What are you picking on me for? Isn't the best thing that ever happened to the world the crucifixion of Jesus? If it weren't for me, you'd have no atonement. So you people should be saying thank you that I fulfilled the scripture and delivered him into the hands of the Gentiles. You should give me a pat on the back because through my sin, the glory has come to pass. It's absurd. It's an absurd line of reasoning. Yet this is the way, if we're honest, our sinful hearts want to reason, want to argue with God. Well, finally here in verse 8, we see one last question, which in a lot of ways is just a a logical extension of question 3, and that is this. Paul, don't the ends justify the means? Look at verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, but their condemnation is just? Basically, the the reasoning here is, Paul, if what you're saying here is true, then don't the, the ends justify the means? Isn't the end result, isn't it the end result that matters? Isn't it, isn't the main thing that God is glorified, even if that means through my sin? I think the question by this point is more of an accusation. The Jews would often accuse Paul of, of setting aside the law. It's called antinomianism. Accuse Paul of setting aside the law by offering salvation through a gospel that, that doesn't include becoming Jewish and taking on circumcision and, and taking on the, the yoke of the law. Paul says that this is slanderous. Christians do not believe in living in sin that grace may abound. We do not believe that the ends justify the means. And, and in fact, Paul doesn't even really answer the question at this point. He just says that their condemnation is just. Just dismisses it. Strong words, right? Their condemnation is just, but you know, Paul was, was never shy about defending the truth of the gospel that the, that the way of salvation might always be clear and free of hindrance. Twisting the gospel to some sort of cheap grace that allows us to continue, to continue in unrepentant sin that, great, that God's glory may abound is just, is just absolutely absurd and Paul dismisses it in a moment. Well, what, what shall we say in conclusion to all this? Just this. I want to bring you back to the example of, of King David and his repentance. In Psalm 51. 
You know, if, if Paul's accusations of hypocrisy, uh, the, the charge that he levels against his Jewish contemporaries hits any kind of a nerve in your own life, then, then please don't respond in, in pride like the emperor in his invisible clothes. Don't try to keep up the charade in your, in your pride. Don't engage in absurd argumentations like what we saw here in this text designed to only to defend the, the things that are obviously wrong. Rather, follow David's example in acknowledging your sin and acknowledging God's faithfulness and righteousness, even in judgment, and throw yourself at his feet for mercy. The good news that we're drawing ever so close to here in the book of Romans is, hang on, we're almost there. That good news can also be found in Psalm 51, verse 17, where David wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Christian, if you find that you've been caught in some hypocrisy, don't draw back from your faith or even from the community of faith, but rather repent like David, respond like David did. Don't let Satan use that sin in your life, that unconfessed sin in your life, as a, a point of accusation against you and, and cause you to give up hope and just to walk away. I know that this potential pitfall of hypocrisy is, is a frightening thing. But let me tell you, there, there's no greater, more advantaged place for you to be than walking in repentance and faith by the mercies of God, standing under the promises of God investigating the word of God, taking them for, you, for yourself. Don't let this COVID-19 quarantine be an excuse for you to simply just slip away. I would say now more than ever, we need to hear Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't let unconfessed sin in your life be the cause of you slowly slipping away. Repent of your sin and believe in his cleansing power and then place yourself intentionally where you will be stirred up to love and good works, encouraged in the Lord all the more as we see that day drawing near.